Good morning, friends. You know, I just want to underscore a couple things um, before we begin this morning. Um, most of you are aware that we lost a member of our church community just, a, just over a week ago, Doug Underhill. And um, Doug and his wife Kim have been instrumental in providing leadership and coordination and facilitation for Night to Shine. Um, and I want to just mention to you that I've been approached, as has uh, the Underhill family, by many wondering how they can honor Doug. Because of their involvement, not only, <clears throat> excuse me, not only in Night to Shine, but in the variety of roles in which each of them have served this church body, but also the wider community, honoring Doug um, certainly is an appropriate thing that we can consider. Kim has suggested one way to do that would be to consider a financial contribution to the Night to Shine Fund, and that would help offset the costs involved in offering this event. Another point that I'd like to make is that we will be holding a celebration of Doug's life this coming Saturday, the day after Night to Shine, at 1 p.m. here at Essex Alliance. So if you're able and available, please join the family for that celebration. Now, I grew up, I was born and has grown up here in Vermont, and winter is part of life. And I've sort of taken pride in the fact that shoveling snow is something I don't mind doing. But I have to admit, in more recent years, I have begun to uh, not appreciate shoveling snows quite so much. Truth be told, uh, this year I decided I would in fact take the plunge and purchase for me the first ever snowblower. Well, several weeks ago we had, I don't know, three or four inches where we live. So I was ready. Now, this is not a hand-pushed snowblower. This is, this is big, and it attaches to the front of my lawnmower, my lawn tractor. So I was ready. And contrary to the typical stereotyping of men, I read the instruction manual. <laughs> I was prepped. I, in fact, I was looking forward to the first snowstorm. Three inches, come on. Well, good opportunity to learn. I fired it up, pulled it out of the, the garage, and I was letting it warm up a bit excited to take a stab at this project. And it had drifted a bit, so you know, there was more than three inches immediately in front of me. So I'm sitting there and I am rattling through all of the instructions that I had previously read. And I began to think through the various levers on this contraption sitting out in front of me. Well, on the left side is a kind of a rotating knob and 
that knob's rotation determines the deflection of the chute, the direction where the snow is going to get thrown. Got it. Well, right beside that is a lever that goes forward and backward. And that determines the actual opening of the chute. So the snow is either going to be directed more laterally or higher. Important, especially if it's windy. And then on the right side, there's this great big long, it's got to be seven feet long from the front of this unit all the way beside me. And it's got like a, a brake release kind of clip on the side. And if you push down on that, the entire auger system is lifted from the, from the ground. I'm all set. Engines warmed up and there's a lot of snow out there. So I engage the augers and I proceed to dive into the snow in front of me. Nothing. No snow coming out of the chute. It's like, what is going on? So I back it up and I go forward again thinking, well, maybe, maybe I just didn't get enough into the augers so that it threw. Nothing. So I shut it down. I get off the tractor. I go around. I look. And there's, everything looks normal. The cables are all connected. Get back on. Fire it up again. Engage the auger. Pull forward. Nothing. So I back it into the driveway. Shut it down. And as I'm about to get off the tractor, I realize that next to me, that seven-foot arm is down, which means the auger is up. <laughs> I read the instructions, but they didn't talk about make sure that you lower this system before you start plowing into the snow. Well, truth be told, it was operator error, machine was fine, and I had a blast. The, the fact is that as we approach winter, just like approaching a new year, it brings us to the point of deciding how we will approach that season ahead of us. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, whether here in this room or at North Ave, or perhaps watching online, you're aware that we are proceeding through a series that Pastor Scott titled, A Great New Year. And in one sense, a series like this, as we begin a new year, is sort of to be expected. Now, the first four weeks of January, Pastor Scott offered us several challenges intended to usher us toward that great new year. And then last week, Pastor Matt posed a question to us. And how we respond to these challenges and that question, in large measure, sets our trajectory for the days ahead. It's interesting to me that almost universally, as we flip the proverbial calendar to the beginning of the new year, we have this innate tendency as people, this inherent desire, and even an internal hope that the days ahead, if we work hard enough, 
will be better than the days behind. Now, Pastor Scott's first Sunday challenge was brought to us by him pointing out perhaps a new perspective around a very familiar verse, familiar to many. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He pointed out to us that, in fact, this is a commandment. A commandment that if we receive and then obey, will over time prove to be strategically important for the year ahead. But for many of us, it will also prove to be difficult, at least difficult to be consistent in receiving that commandment and obeying it. The second Sunday, he challenged us to consider that we ought to make every moment a redefining moment. He read to us a passage from Mark chapter 3 in which Jesus performed a healing, pointing out that it's often a matter of us needing to stand up and to reach out in order to have our very identity redefined by the gracious, powerful, healing work of God. On the third Sunday, he challenged us to be willing to have our hearts broken and broken sufficiently to prod us into action. Using Nehemiah's experience as a as an example. You see, Nehemiah had been heartbroken by the destruction of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, while he was in exile. It broke his heart and it caused him to be tearful. He wept at the news. But after his tears, he began to pray. And through his prayer, he decided he would take action because his heart had been so profoundly broken. He risked the privileged position he had as the king's cupbearer. He took the step, he took the action to approach the king and to petition to be released in order to repair the walls of Jerusalem. The fourth Sunday, Pastor Scott challenged us to be ready, in fact, to resolve, to lose those things, those plans, perhaps, and even those relationships that hinder us from being free to lean in to the opportunities that are right in front of us, opportunities that will allow us to play a part in benefiting others over ourselves. In fact, Pastor Scott went on to say that the Christian life is a life that is characterized by self-denial, not self-improvement. The bottom line is it's going to cost us. If our hearts are broken, are they broken enough are they broken sufficiently to lose those things 
that would prevent us from taking action. And then last Sunday, Pastor Matt posed the question to us. Do you really love God's word? Working largely from Psalm 119, he pointed out to us that it's through God's word that we get to know God, that we get to appreciate his heart. It's through God's word that we get to know ourselves. Much like the imagery in the book of James that looking in a mirror, we really see who we are. Blemishes included, receding hairlines included. But the flip side is that that notion of a mirror also reflects to us through God's word how God sees us and his sight of us, his view of us is one of profound love. God's word also helps us to understand how we should live. And it really narrows down to the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And the second is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. Now each of these January sermons brought a challenge that could help to shift our focus from a mere New Year's resolution kind of perspective or mindset to a daily and even a moment-by-moment awareness. Resolutions don't have to just be for the year ahead. So what is a resolution? Well, a resolution has been described as simply being a decision to either do or to not do something. It's characterized by a firm intent a fixed resolve, a specific plan, hopefully, clear purpose, a strong commitment, and an internal or personal promise. And it requires ongoing determination. Now, this morning, I'm gonna take a step back or a step to the side and pause from the notion of resolutions in order to consider a key question that requires our individual answer. A key question that we need to respond to even as we're hoping for a great new year. And how we answer this morning's question will determine the success that we'll experience in bringing a shift to any of the mindsets or practices or perspectives that Pastor Matt spoke to last Sunday. Our individual answer to this morning's question will significantly impact the likelihood of our success in any effort to continue with any resolution we may make whether it be an annual resolution, a daily resolution, or a moment-by-moment 
decision or resolution. I'd like to pause for a moment to just offer a word of prayer, if you would join me. Father, I would just ask that as we continue to look forward to the days, the weeks, the months ahead, that you would, in your gracious way, bring to mind the reality that indeed we have decisions to make, answers to give, resolutions to carry within. And I would just ask that as we consider this, today's question, that each one of us would find within us clarity for the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one day, as Jesus was walking with his disciples, as was his practice, he was talking with them. And he was asking questions. And we're going to look at one particular question that we find in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that is, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now there are three particular vignettes in Peter's life that we're going to look at today. This being the first. We first meet Peter in the scripture earlier in Matthew's gospel. When he was still a commercial fisherman. And in this passage we're catching up with him after he has been following Jesus, living with Jesus for some time as one of his closest disciples. So there really, there really are only three possible answers to Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? And our personal answer, our individual reply to this question, just like for Peter, sets a trajectory for all that lies ahead in our lives, including what's ahead in this new year. So the three options, we can declare, like Peter, that Jesus indeed is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Second option is to reject those claims denying either to be true or denying the experience of one or the other to be true. And then, thirdly, we can decide, if necessary, to return to his presence if we have wandered from it. Simon Peter answered, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the Christ 
the Messiah, equivalent terms, essentially the Savior. Peter's answer is actually pretty significant in this particular location, the city of Caesarea Philippi, because at the time, this city was just full of pagan shrines, false gods being worshipped by the inhabitants. So in that it happened here, in this setting, that Jesus is first declared to be the Messiah and the Son of God is significant. Now, Jesus points out that Peter's declaration or confession just voiced didn't result from him having been convinced by his brother Andrew, who had actually introduced Peter to Jesus. And it didn't come from being convinced by any other person. Jesus identifies the, the reality that Peter's confession came because his father in heaven had revealed it to him. But interesting, just a few verses later, while Jesus was telling his disciples what lies ahead for himself, that he was to be betrayed and crucified, that he strongly rebuked Peter when Peter, thinking this couldn't happen, gave voice to that. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. If anyone wants to become my follower, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In other words, Jesus was saying, following me is going to be costly. It's curious that Peter's very name, Peter, translates to rock. And yet, in this instance, Jesus describes him as a stumbling block, a stumbling rock. Don't miss the importance of this exchange between Jesus and Peter. When Jesus asked the more general question, who do people say that I am? The other disciples provided a variety of responses, all of which were incorrect or wrong. But Jesus didn't rebuke those who had spoken those ideas. Instead, he probed further and made it more personal. And Peter confidently declared or confessed Jesus to be both Savior and Lord. And though his confession was heartfelt, because of his misunderstanding of the work that lies ahead for the Messiah. Being inaccurate, Jesus had to correct him, had to rebuke him. Significantly, the story of Peter's life provides us with all three, with examples, I should say, of all three of the possible responses to today's question. And each of those responses sets a trajectory. Our reply to this question sets a trajectory for us as well. Now, 
I realize we are in church, and I suspect that many of you here in Essex or at North Ave, or perhaps those watching online, would respond or answer this question much like Peter did, declaring Jesus to be your Savior, declaring him to be the Son of God, essentially declaring him to be Lord. Those are two distinct aspects to that response, Savior and Lord. See, Peter had left his nets to follow Jesus. And in so doing, his identity was redefined from fisherman to disciple. Now, I am equally certain there are some listening today that wouldn't agree with Peter's response. Instead, your reply to this question might be to reject or deny Jesus as either Savior or Lord, perhaps denying both, not sensing or appreciating a need for a Savior, and not yielding to Jesus as Lord. Again, in the Gospel record, Peter's life, we see how significantly the trajectory of what lies ahead is brought by answers. Now, Jesus, over time, lived with Peter and the disciples for roughly a three-year period. And during that three-year period, Peter, along with James and his brother John, kind of became an inner circle, if you will, among the disciples, those three together. Soon after this dialogue, uh, Jesus, in fact, invited Peter, James, and John to accompany him up a mountainside. And what occurred up there that particular day was what we refer to as the transfiguration, where these three of the inner circle of disciples experienced Jesus transformed to his full glory. The other disciples didn't experience that privilege. Now moving on during their time together as disciples of Jesus, we ultimately come to the Garden of Gethsemane. Following the Last Supper, Jesus went with his disciples into the garden to pray. And there he was betrayed, arrested, and forcibly brought to appear before the Sanhedrin. And that's the next vignette that we're going to look at from Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a slave woman came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another slave woman saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it. 
with an oath this time, I do not know the man. A little later, bystanders came up and said to Peter, you really are one of them as well, since even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Peter remembered the statement that Jesus had made, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now that's a powerfully dramatic narrative. But oftentimes, denial or rejection isn't voiced. Rather, it's communicated via attitudes or associations or actions. This particular event in Peter's life seems to suggest that he may not have been a real disciple. Remember the challenge we heard a couple of weeks ago from Luke 14, where Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So what about Peter? I mean, while Jesus was inside being interrogated and ultimately condemned by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, Peter is outside denying that he's even associated with him. Did Peter forget the essence of the Christian life? That it's a life marked by self-denial rather than self-preservation. I mean, after all, this is the same man who had confidently confessed Jesus in the midst of a city that was just full of pagan worship versus belief in the living God. But yet, in the courtyard, Peter is afraid because Jesus had predicted what was happening. And yet, in the moment, Peter felt his own life was also at risk. Now, while our reply to today's question sets a trajectory for what lies ahead of us, that's only part of the story. Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin, sent off to the Roman authorities. And before them, he was not only humiliated, but whipped like a common criminal. And then when Pilate offered Jesus to the Jewish people as their king, they screamed their rejection of him. And Jesus then was forced to carry his own cross to Golgotha and died on that cross. But that too is only part of the story. You see, Jesus had also predicted that on the third day he would be raised. So following the resurrection, 
many of us are very familiar with the confusion and the fear that settled upon the disciples. Both that core group and the larger following that Jesus had in fact taught for years. But after the resurrection, there's another vignette from Peter's life that speaks to the third experience or response that's possible in reply to the question. From John chapter 21, starting with verse 15. Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my lambs. He, Jesus, said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter was hurt because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. There is much more to the story than just our reply to today's question. But it has to be the starting point. My reply, your reply to Jesus' question sets a trajectory for what lies ahead. But this passage in John's Gospel shows that God's grace God's forgiveness and God's love prevails. Peter had denied Jesus repeatedly, three times. So it seems to me very intentional on the part of John in his gospel that he captured how Jesus repeatedly, again, three times, had asked Peter, the same question. On a morning not long after his resurrection, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, just as he had predicted, Peter, in this conversation, I have no doubt, remembered his three denials and recognized with some sadness and maybe a little irritation that Jesus asked this question three times. John wants us all to recognize that God's grace is sufficient. In fact, Scripture tells us that God's grace is made perfect in our weakness. Here, we see Peter... <clears throat> 
who had, because of his human weakness, denied even knowing Jesus, which set a trajectory for Peter until he encountered God's grace. Equally important is the forgiveness demonstrated to Peter by Jesus during this conversation. And it's made, in a sense, all the more remarkable when we remember that it was Peter himself who had pressed Jesus for more specific reply when Jesus was teaching them about forgiveness. Peter asked him these, this question with these words. Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? Well, the number seven has historically kind of carried the, the connotation of completion. Peter was intent on knowing the numerical requirements on him as a follower of Christ as relates to forgiveness. He was looking for a quantitative answer versus a qualitative answer. But Jesus replied, not seven, but 77, essentially requiring his followers to extend forgiveness without limit. Sufficient to override the trajectory set by Peter's denials of Jesus just days earlier, the forgiveness that Jesus demonstrated toward him had no numerical limits. And then thirdly, this particular encounter with Jesus elicits from Peter far, far more than just a repetitious assertion of his love. You see, Jesus, because of his love for Peter, coupled with Peter's repentant heart, instead restores Peter's very identity. Peter's identity was restored by Jesus with three statements. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and tend my sheep. The trajectory of Peter's life, because of his repeated denials of Jesus, had been set, but Jesus' love prevails. Peter's identity was restored. In fact, he was entrusted with caring for and leading others into following Christ. It strikes me that it was Peter himself in one of his letters encouraging other believers later on where he said, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope within you. The very man who had denied Jesus three times encourages us today to be ready with an answer for our hope in Christ. So my reply, your reply to Jesus' question, 
who do you say that I am, sets the trajectory for what lies ahead of us. But there's more to the story. Peter's life, these three vignettes, are examples of how God's grace, forgiveness, and love prevails. So, if you, which I suspect we all are, hoping for a great new year, begin by answering today's question. Set your trajectory. Is Jesus your Savior? Is he your Lord? If you've never declared your faith in Jesus as Savior, set your trajectory today. Perhaps you believe him to be your Savior. And I've sat with many of you and had conversations around the second half of Peter's answer. If you identify yourself as a follower of Christ, you know him as Savior, but you have not yielded his rightful place as Lord, set your trajectory this morning. Remember Peter's life. Remember the grace, the forgiveness, the love that Jesus extended to him. That gracious, powerful, healing and restorative work of God can be ours today as well. So set your trajectory this morning. And then lean in and hang on for a great new year. I'd like to close with a word of prayer, if you would join me. Father, as we sung, opening our time together this morning, faithful you are. Lord, I ask that you would bring each and every one of us to a point of declaring, confessing, you as Savior and Lord, that we, as your followers, as Peter encouraged, would be ready with an answer for the hope that is within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy today as the gift it is.